We're in week five in our series on the Apostles' Creed. What are you thinking about that, the Apostles' Creed? You thinking about some things maybe you haven't in a while or maybe for the first time? This definitely is going to work on me. It's leading me into some of those places that oftentimes the church neglects. And today is one of those subjects. We're going to be looking at the line, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. So as you're sitting there, pray for me. This is sobering, but friends, it's good news. If it's in the book, it's good news. Everything in this book from Genesis to Revelation is good news is the gospel. And if it's not for us, then we're not reading it right. So I just want to say, when Christ is coming to judge, he's coming again and he will judge the living and the dead, this is wonderful news. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is how might we position ourselves? How do we posture ourselves so that this can be good news flowing into our hearts and our lives? We've been talking about how the creed does many things. It's basically scriptural language lifted from the Bible and put together in these 12 statements. And so the creed does many things, and it leads us into the whole counsel of God. And we're going to see that today because, frankly, preaching, teaching, looking into the fact that he will come and that he will judge the living and the dead might not make the top 10 list in many churches. Right? I don't know how many messages I've heard on this, but friends, we're going to look at it. And I feel like it's part of being responsible, being informed, and looking at the full counsel of God's good news. What I want us to do, why don't we stand? I want us to say the Apostles' Creed. We've only done that once over the last five weeks, and we've, we'll have it on a, a slide hopefully up here. And if not, I encourage you to get one of these little pamphlets here that Connie made, and you can get those back here where I'm pointing, back behind Ben, over here. If you want to get one, you can look at it, put it in your Bible. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. And again, we'll get to this, but when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, what do we mean? Do we mean the Roman Catholic Church? No. What do we mean? The universal worldwide church. So we'll be explaining that shortly, but let's say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can take a seat. So we're going to look at these two lines, these two articles of our faith. He will come again. 
And if you remember last week, we looked at his descent to the dead, the fact that he was raised, that he ascended to the Father. We even looked at the passage in Acts 1, 11, where the angel says that Christ will come in the same way that you're seeing him go into heaven. So I want to make a few reflections here on he will come again. Geez, we could do a whole series on that, but today I just want to touch on a few things about his coming. And there's all kinds of debate and, frankly, confusion around this, but I just want to distill it to some things that are abundantly clear in the Scriptures and stay out of the weeds. He will come again. He will come at God's appointed time. At God's appointed time. No one can manipulate that whatsoever. In the New Testament, Paul is reflecting on when he came the first time. And he says in Galatians 4.4, listen to what he says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. So it was the fullness of time. It was a convergent moment when everything came together perfectly, culturally, politically, everything. The Lord said, it's the fullness of time, I'm sending my son. And friends, we're waiting for God's appointed time again for him to say, it is yet another fullness of time. It's an alignment. Things are coming together and I'm sending my son just as I sent him the first time. Jesus himself said this in Mark 1.15. He was beginning his public ministry and he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So there's something about God's time, God's moment, the fullness of time and friends, it will come again. There could be a fullness of time moment that you get to see. We're not sure. But the fullness of time will happen again. On that note, a second thing I want to say about he will come again, only the Father knows when. Look at Matthew 24, 36. Matthew 24, 36 says this. And this is in the middle of the greatest message ever given on the second coming by Jesus himself, Matthew 24. And while he's talking about this and his disciples have asked him, what are the signs of your coming? And he lays these various sobering things out. And he says this at verse 36. But about that day and hour, when the Son of Man will appear, no one knows. Let's say that together. No one knows. Neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So my friends, when you see the books that set the dates, which is kind of fun, you know, to look on YouTube, who, who knows the latest date? And these are the reasons why it's rubbish. They don't know. Who knows? No one knows. The Father knows. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't study the scriptures and listen to reliable voices and not be caught off guard. There are promises in scripture that give us an idea 
that forecast. And one of the primary ones is also in Matthew 24, and that is the end will not come until the gospel goes to every nation, every people group. When that happens, then you can be sure that it might be the fullness of time. But other than that, the charts, the setting of dates, all of that frankly contradicts the teachings of Scripture, doesn't it? No one knows. So don't be fooled. 88 reasons why he's coming back in 1988. I remember that one. It didn't happen. 2,000 reasons he's coming back in the year 2000. Y2K flopped. It did not happen. No one knows, only the Father. But we do know this. He will come again. He will come again. And if you're a Christian, you believe in the Scriptures, you confess the Apostles' Creed, you believe he will come again in his resurrected body. We're going to look further at that. A second thing I want to say about he will come again, not only is it at God's appointed time, but friends, it's going to be awe-inspiring. It's going to be universal, and it's going to be awe-inspiring. Jesus says in that same chapter, Matthew 24, verse 30, he says, the sign of the Son of Man is coming. And it will be in great power and great glory. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.6. The Apostle Paul pouring over the words of Jesus. And really what Paul does is comment on the words of Jesus. I like to go to the words of Jesus first and then Paul's reflections on them. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is reflecting on that sermon and Matthew 24, and listen to what he says. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Just bear with me here because there's some dense stuff in here, but I want you to just think about this moment will be universal and it will be awesome. It will be jaw-dropping. It will be mind-blowing. Paul says this, For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So he's talking to a persecuted church, and he says, hang in there. Just hang in there. God sees your affliction. He's going to take care of you. Verse 7, and to give relief to the afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes, catch this, to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, he's coming in flaming fire. This isn't my opinion. It's not something that the church conjured up. It's in the word of God. He is coming and the day will be sobering and it will be a day of flaming fire. A day of great glory and holy judgment. Some of you are saying, wow, there's a lot in there. We're gonna go back and look at this in a few minutes, but I just want you to to hear clearly that he will come again and it will be an overwhelming moment for everyone. 
one other thing I want to say before we look into judgment itself. This, the second coming will be responded to by believers. They're going to mourn and hide. So those who have turned, as Paul says, from the gospel and turned from the love of God that's extended to them over and over and over again. That's what's behind this whole message. The Father, the creator of all of us, is filled with infinite love. And he reaches out through his son and he reaches out through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and he reaches out through life in very personal ways for all of us and says, I love you. Receive my love. I love you infinitely. Be mine. Be my child. Be my child. Let me rescue you. And some say no. It's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. I don't understand it at all. Look at Revelation 1.7. I know we're touching on several things, but again, we're trying to attend to the whole counsel of Scripture. Scripture says many, many things about this, and we're just touching on a few of the salient points here. Revelation 1.7. says this, look, he, Christ, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Friends, I know this is sobering but it's reality. If you want to know what the real, real is, this is it. This is the real stuff. Theologians, philosophers, politicians can come up with their ideas, but friends, this is the real stuff. This is what we're preparing for. This is what we're, the life, our, our aim, our trajectory is headed toward these moments, whether we're alive or we're dead. Revelation 6, I'm just going to read it. Verse 15 says that the kings of the earth and the generals, the rich and the powerful, slave and free, they're hiding in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they're calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? So some will mourn, some will want to hide but they won't be able to. Remember, this is good news. If you're not awake, check your pulse. You should be awake and hearing this no matter what age you are, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. Maybe today you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe someone tuning in, you need to submit to the Lord. This is an invitation for all of those things. The last thing I want to say here is that the coming of Jesus will be to consummate the kingdom of God. All of the biblical prophetic promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled in his first coming. He came as a suffering servant, didn't he? In Isaiah 53, he came to bear our sins, the Lamb of God. That was his first coming. But friends, his second coming is going to be different. The New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, prophesy the return of the Messiah, and he's not coming back as a lamb to be slaughtered, but as a conquering king to rule the nations of the earth. 
And we get to get in on this now. We are kingdom people. We get to partner with him. We get to submit to him now. Revelation 19 talks at length about this. And on the note of Revelation, we're going to look at that at the turn of the year. We're going to spend some time looking at the book of Revelation. I'm trying to look at some things that there's lots of controversy and questions around and and clear it up and really say behind all of this is an infinitely loving, good, sovereign God, and our response to him is worship. And so we're going to look at the book of Revelation in the spring. So Jesus comes to consummate all of the promises of the Old and New Testament. Listen to what Hebrews 9, 27 says about this. Christ, see if you can hear these two things, how he came the first time, how he came the second time. Hebrews 9, 27, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So friends, we live in this in-between time, the already and the not yet. We talk about that. It's a scriptural value. It's a vineyard value. We are already not yet people. The kingdom of God has been initiated, but we're living in this interim time, the not yet when it's not fully consummated, but he's going to consummate it. He's going to wrap the whole thing up. He's going to fulfill every promise that's made. He's going to save every person that believes in him, and he's going to make things right. One last little thing I want to comment on here is that he's coming back to receive a purified and prepared bride. That's us. That's you. Look around this room. We're the bride of Jesus. We're the ones that he loves. He's crazy about us in a holy way. Jesus talks about this quite a bit. He's working out of the fact that this is the greatest story of love ever told. One theologian calls it theodrama, that Jesus has in his heart a people made up of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and he is united to them in love and faithfulness. We're his bride. This is one of the richest metaphors in Scripture. And the Bible says that he's coming back for a purified and prepared bride. Jesus talks about being the bridegroom and talks about his bride in John 3. He says in Mark 2, 19 through 20, listen to what he says. He says that when he is taken away after his death, resurrection, and ascension, His people, his bride, will fast and pray, longing for his return. The Apostle Paul again picks this up, passage we're familiar with. Look at Ephesians 5, 25. And we like to look at this as the relationship between husbands and wives, but uh, lurking behind it, the deeper mystery here is the relationship between Jesus and his bride. Listen to what Paul says and see if you can hear what I signaled here about Jesus coming back for a people that looks a specific way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. Verse 27, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Again, friends, that is us. And Jesus is radically committed to having a church in splendor. So the idea that the church is going to be a sinking ship or some pathetic body is misleading. No, Jesus has resolved in his mind And again, I don't know how he does it. He's gracious and powerful and just and fair all at the same time. But when he comes back, there will be a purified and prepared bride. That's good news, isn't it? It is good news. Revelation 19 at verse 6. There's worship going on in this awesome moment. And the angels of heaven and all the saints and the martyrs throughout time are saying... Let us rejoice and exult and give God glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So friends, he's coming back. It's going to be awesome. He's coming back in fire. He's coming back for a purified bride. And he's coming back. The second thing I want us to look at briefly here is to judge the living and the dead. What does it mean by the living and the dead? It means that every human being that's ever lived will stand before him. In short, that's what it means. It means that every person will stand before him in a resurrection body and give account for what they've done. Can you see how awesome this is? I mean, all week I have uh, found myself on my face saying, Lord, I, this is just, uh, this is almost too much. And in an environment where people want to have their ears tickled or we want a message on five ways to be happy, five things that God can do for you, five ways that God can fill your bank account, five ways that God can heal your marriage, all, some of these things are really important, but friends, This is why we look into things like this. And I think we're in an hour right now, regardless of what ends up happening, we, we don't know, but I want us to be sober. I want us to be prepared people so that in that moment, you're not accessing the five ways that God wants to make me happy, but you're saying, I'm on my face before my maker and before the holy judge of all the nations. And I'm preparing, this is kind of a dress rehearsal That's what I felt like I was doing even this morning. I was on the carpet with my hands reaching out and I was picturing holding on to his feet and saying, I want to be, I want to rehearse. I want to practice. This is practice. And I, it was like I was holding on to the feet of Jesus saying, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. And I felt his mercy. I felt his mercy so that I want to practice that so that when I get in that moment, I'm clutching his feet and saying, I receive your mercy. I receive your mercy. And I'm not taken by surprise at all. I'm overwhelmed because you're overwhelming, but I've been here before in prayer. I've been here before in prayer. And I'm inviting you, church, 
Go there in prayer. Get on your face before the Lord. Hold on to his feet and ask for his mercy. Receive his mercy. So Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. Those who have died previously, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, why don't we look there, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following, he addresses this. How are you doing, friends? You awake? You ready to go home and get on the carpet and prepare for this? I certainly am. And I invite you to do this with friends and with others. Receive his mercy. Do it as a family. That may sound peculiar, but I don't think we do enough of this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, Paul says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, you hear some of the creed there, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive are left, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Then look what he says at verse 18. This is why it's good news. What's the Apostle Paul say? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Not depress one another. Encourage one another with these words. Now, we could talk about many things in here, but what I'm pointing out is there will be a moment when Jesus comes, literally, physically, in his physical body, re-enters human history as we know it right now, and people will be alive in that moment. Believers, Paul's addressing them, and he's saying, don't be afraid, believers, the Lord will gather you to himself. He will also gather believers who have died. That is the point of this passage. And just a little side note here, many people have the rapture wrong. The idea that we're going to get helicoptered out or hydrovacked out of tough times is a distortion. Do you think that Jesus himself would have preached a pre-tribulational rapture? How about the Apostle Paul? When it gets really bad, the Lord's going to take us out. That's not what this passage is arguing. The passage is basically saying he will come again and he will gather people to himself and he will take care of us. So we can talk later if that rustles some of your feathers. I think the whole council of scripture teaches that Christians should know these things and prepare ourselves. And that when tough times come, more glory comes, more anointing, more power, more kingdom activity. So it's not fearful at all. But just the idea, frankly, is rather American that when it gets tough, we get taken out. I stand before you as your pastor and say, that's not how it works. We enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Is that right? 
And I'm sorry if that is uh, offensive for some or stings a little bit. Prepare ourselves. Prepare ourselves. So Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And this judgment is for everyone. And I want to say this. Jesus sits on a throne of grace. He sits on a throne of grace. It's a throne of fire, Daniel 7 says. So he sits on a throne of fire. And it's grace for some. And it's utter terror and judgment for others. He sits on a throne, and really it's up to us. How are you going to experience that throne? Will it be a throne of grace that you can come and receive grace freely and receive the fire of his love? Song of Solomon says there's a fire of love in the very heart of God for us. Will you receive it now, or will you seal your heart off? Will you say no to God? Will you keep yourself enthroned in your heart? Because judgment's coming for everyone. Hebrews 9.27 says this. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. All of us will die one time. Sorry, reincarnation. Sorry, Buddhist tradition, Hindu tradition. People live and die one time. And then we face our maker and we either get to experience the throne of grace or a throne of judgment. I just want to look. I'm taking a few extra minutes. Is that okay? It's like opening up the can here, and I can't leave us hanging. So I'm going to take a few minutes, and then I think the Lord wants to uh, do something with worship and prayer in us. That's the right response. Life is short. And so this is a glimpse of where we're headed. This is the trajectory of all nations, the trajectory of the church. So is it okay if I take a few minutes and we look at a couple of these things? Is that all right? We're good on time, but Romans 14, 10 through 12. You can look there, should have it on a slide. The Apostle Paul is talking about the coming day of judgment. He says to the church at Rome, the beloved in Christ, he says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. If that does not shake you to your bone marrow, then you need to meditate on this. That shakes me to my bone marrow that I will give an account of myself to God. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. The Apostle Paul bringing it again, and he's bringing it into these new churches with new believers, and he's affirming to them, you're chosen. God saves you by grace through faith. He loves you. He's rescued you, but he will also hold you accountable for the life that you live. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us 
may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So what this text is not saying is that you should carry around bags of guilt for the things that you've done in your body before you knew Jesus. Friends, that's not what this text is saying. We come to Jesus, the power of the blood of Christ, the grace of God wipes those things out. As far as the east is from the west, that's removed from us. What Paul is saying here is there's an accountability. You're saved by faith, your relationship of love with Jesus, and now you will give an account for the deeds that you do in your body. That's what the text is saying here. So do you hear me on that? This is not a guilt-inducing text at all. It's a Christian, watchful, and sobriety-inducing text. Write this down. You can look at it later, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 and following. Basically, Paul is spelling out how our various works will be tested and evaluated, and he's specifically speaking about teachers and those responsible for building in the church, but it applies generally to all Christians as well. We'll stand before him and give account for all the deeds in our body, and in that moment, the most just, knowing, tender, compassionate person ever Christ himself will look into our lives and will give account. Have you ever had someone confront you when you are just wrong and they say something, man, Amanda does this really well. This happened in the last week. She said something and everything in me was like, no, you're wrong. I am right. And it just rung true. What she is saying is true. It is an assessment of me in this moment even if I don't want to hear it, and I have to acknowledge that. Well, friends, it will be like that in that moment. There may be things in your life that you're like, well, she did this, he did this, and we'll just say you're speaking truth, and I receive that. And I receive your grace, but you speak truth, and you're full of justice and fairness. You're right. So again, we're pondering these things so that we know who will stand before one day. Do you trust him? Do you trust the Lord Jesus? If not, I encourage you to pour over the scriptures. Look at, get a better glimpse of him. He is infinite in love and forgiveness. Some of the first revelations about God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, where he is full of love and grace and forgiveness and kindness for a thousand generations. I had in mind, I wanted to look at Matthew 25, but I'm just going to make some comments here because it's part of knowing what will that judgment be like. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 is pretty familiar with people. There's a separation happening. The Son of Man comes in glory. All the nations are gathered before him, and what happens? A separation. There's a metaphor that's used. What is it? The sheep and the goats. The sheep are on the right side, the goats are on the left, and the point of this passage, again, is that all people for all time will be evaluated according to our deeds. 
I've read all kinds of commentaries on this, people trying to skirt around and get around it and you know, figure out what's the text saying. The text is not saying that you do good deeds in order to get in heaven. You do good deeds because you're going to heaven. You do good deeds because love has taken root in your heart and therefore you can't help but love other people. That's the point of the passage. But there is something in this passage. Jesus says, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. The apostle Paul heard that, didn't he, in Acts 9. Do you remember when Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul who was persecuting the church aggressively? And what did Jesus say to him? You're persecuting me. Paul, and your life is getting ready to turn upside down, and you're going to live out of this reality. As you love and serve other people, you're loving and serving me. It's a great mystery. And so Matthew 25 is speaking about that. As I was reflecting on this this week, I was thinking, ah, this makes me uncomfortable. I'm not sure I understand this, and I just kept coming to it over and over again. And I imagine that someone had given me an ATM card to a bank account with $5 million in it. Each time I went to make a withdrawal from the ATM, I had to bring someone else with me. That is what is being talked about here. Friends, you have been given great spiritual treasure, salvation through the love of God. Your bank account spiritually is full, it's loaded. The key is you share it with other people. This is not about works. This is about an infinitely generous, gracious God through his son, giving you everything you need. Now go share it with other people. Reread this passage. See what the Lord might say to you. The key is to share, to touch the poor, to touch the needy. So I kind of apologize for this morning. I know it's tough. It's sobering. Am I alone or am I, are there other people that feel sobered? Anyone else feel sobered by the word of God? I feel it to my toes and back. We'll all stand before him. He's coming again. If this is sobering, it should shake us, empower us to live holy. It's encouraging, gives us courage to face anything at any time, any moment in history, and it's motivating as well. This should motivate us. What am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my money? What am I doing with my thoughts? I've got to wake up. I've got to go and touch the broken. I've got to go and share with my coworkers. I have got to wake up. God, wake me up. So Lord, we do. We, we thank you for your word, even when it's challenging and difficult and we have to grapple with it. We stand before you. We stand before your word. Lord Jesus, we're sober. I pray that you would awaken us today in a way maybe some of us have never experienced. Awaken us, Lord. You are coming again, and each of us will stand before you, before your throne of grace. Help us to prepare. Help us be ready. Help us share your love, your message with other people. 
I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we've got a few minutes here, and I'm just sensing that the Lord's uh, wanting to talk with us a little bit. So why don't we, why don't we worship a little? You could uh, come up here as long as you're spread out a little bit. You may have some business to do with the Lord. Kind of recommit yourself fully to him. You can do it there where you're seated. Then we'll have the ministry team come up. So let's take a few minutes and worship and reflect on what the Lord's been showing us in his word.